It's always good and a privilege to be here on the days that we have baptism. So exciting to see people respond to the call of Christ and to step forward and to take that step of baptism to allow, to allow others to know that they truly are believed. Today, we're going to finish the second half of Acts chapter 1. And we'll be covering verses 12 to 26 specifically. And I better get this out so I've got it ready. Um, but to put it into context, what I'd like to do is I'd like to start in chapter 1 beginning at verse 6. So Acts chapter 1 verse 6 says, So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, It is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. Can you imagine what the disciples felt as they stood there? There he was talking with them, and then he was lifted up into a cloud, and he was gone. They had been with him since he started his public ministry when he was baptized by John. They had been with him for three years or more. They saw him resurrected, and now he ascended out of their sight. The disciples had given up jobs. Many times, many cases, they had left families to follow the man who said he was going to make them fishers of men. Now he was gone. Now, Jesus had been preparing them for this event all the time that he was with them, but they just didn't really recognize it. But, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't put that up. Well, all right. Uh, but uh, in John 16, 5, he says, But now I'm going to him who sent me. And none of you asks me, Where are you going? But because I have said to you these things, to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. Yes, he had been preparing them. In John 14, 6, he says, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you, and he will be in you. Even with that kind of preparation, how can you prepare for what you just saw? person standing in front of you, rising up, into heaven, being caught into a cloud, not to be seen again. It must have been a shock to them. Now, they were facing the reality of what Jesus had been teaching them all along. They had been forewarned that he was going to go away and depart from them and not be with them physically, and that time was now. <clears throat> Excuse me. 
2013 was a year of many changes for Sue and me. After teaching chemistry at Southeast Missouri State University for 37 years, I retired in May of that year. Sue and I had been planning what we would do after I retired for a while, and we had chosen that we would move to the retirement system Friendship Village here in Waterloo, Iowa. Now, not going to work daily was a huge change for me. I'd gone every day faithfully. I loved to go to work. I rarely missed a day of work. God gave me good health, much to the, <coughs> excuse, excuse me, the consternation. I think of my students sometimes. I showed up when I probably shouldn't have. <laughs> uh, but that's what I did. Uh, Sue had been a homemaker most of the time that we were married, but she had always been involved in ministry outside the home and within our church. So we both had our daily schedules, our weekly schedules, and now that was going to change. Getting the house ready to sell and selling it consumed our time for a while, but God blessed us there, and our house sold about an hour after it went on the market, and it was a cash sale. So we were ready to go. Then came downsizing and packing. Um, our home now is about 40% of what it was when we left the other one. A week before we left Missouri, Sue's sister and brother-in-law came up and joined us to help us with the last-minute arrangements. And uh, then they were going to accompany us to Waterloo as well. Our son Peter came two days before to do the same, to help us pack, to help us drive up, and for him to have a one last look at the house in which he grew up. So the five of us caravan to Waterloo, we ended up at Landmark Commons, where we were greeted by my sister and brother-in-law who lived there as well. Now after settling into our home, it was time for Sue's sister and brother-in-law to leave. And so the day they left, we walked them out, we saw them drive off, and we walked back into our apartment afterwards. We sat down on the couch and we literally said, what do we do now? This was the first time in 41 years where neither one of us had any obligations. We had no responsibilities. We had no place where we needed to be. But that's where we were at this point. It was an odd feeling. It was an odd feeling. Not one of despair. But it was a reminder that everything had suddenly just changed in our life. Now, we all have situations like that. And I think you can relate to our situation. You can relate to the disciples' situation. We have those situations where we encounter, encounter something unknown. We have no real idea what to do. And we certainly do not know the outcome. I think that was true for the disciples as well. But I think our situation doesn't compare well with theirs. I think theirs was a bit more difficult, perhaps, than what we did. So how do we make good decisions? How do we go on when you come to experiences like this? Well, I believe we can, look, we can learn a lot from the disciples, how they handled their situation with the departure of their Lord and Savior. And so that brings us to the passage for today. And we're going to begin reading at verse 12. 
says, Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the room where they were staying. Excuse me. They went up to the upper room where they were staying. Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot and Judas the son of James. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary the mother of Jesus and his brothers. So the first thing the disciples did after the ascension was that they obeyed Jesus. And they went where he told them to go, back to Jerusalem, and they were waiting for the coming of the Holy Spirit. Now, being obedient to what we already know is extremely important in moving on with Jesus. I don't think that we should expect him to give us further uh, further guidance if we've not already acted on what he has told us. But that's what the disciples did. They did exactly like he said. James puts it this way, therefore to the one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. The one who does not know the right thing, the one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. Isaiah adds, but your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. When we sin, whether it's a sin of commission or omission, that puts a barrier between us and God. It doesn't affect our salvation, but it does affect our fellowship with him. So if we want to go on and we know that we have sin in our lives, we need to confess that before we can begin to do that. John, talking about obedience, said this in chapter 14, verse 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. In Barnes's uh, comment on this verse, he says the following. This is the only proper evidence of love to Jesus for mere profession is no proof of love. But that love for which him, for him, which leads us to do all his will, to love each other, to deny ourselves, to take up our cross, and to follow him through evil report and through good report is true attachment. Obedience flows from a heart of love. Obedience flows from a heart of love. It's not an obligation. It's something that we want to do because we love the Savior. When the disciples uh, returned to the upper room, the passage says that they were of one accord. Their common goal was to stay together and to wait for the coming of the Holy Spirit. Now, this is a time in their life where they might have been tempted to go their separate ways. After all, Jesus had just left them. But they chose not to do that. We might also be tempted to go our separate ways when we get into times of trouble. The circumstances we're in may not be pleasant. They might cause us to worry about what other people would think about us if they knew about those circumstances. And it might tempt us 
to think that we can handle it on our own. That kind of thinking is mistaken. We need the help of each other to withstand the trials that come our way. Solomon understood this when in Ecclesiastes 4, uh, verse 9, he says, Two are better than one because they have good return for their labor. For if either one of them falls, the one will lift up his companion. But woe to the one who falls when there's not another to lift him up. Furthermore, if two lie down together, they keep warm. But how can one be warm alone? And if one can overpower him who is alone, two can resist. A cord of three strands is not quickly torn apart. In difficult times, we benefit from having others come alongside of us. There's more strength when there's two than if you are one. And that second person can provide physical, emotional, and spiritual support and encouragement along the way. We're vulnerable when we're alone, and Satan knows it, and that's when he attacks. But there's great strength when we rely on others to help us through the, the things that come our way. In Proverbs 27, 17, Solomon gives another benefit of having someone around. It says, iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. Again, the benefit of having somebody come along with us is that we can seek their counsel, and that counsel can sharpen our focus, and in many cases, it can give us a completely new perspective on the things that are coming before us. Yes, there's great benefit in including others in decision-making. Wise counsel can, is invaluable. Hebrews 10, 23 says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. This is what should be happening daily when we come together, weekly as we come together here. We should come together to encourage one another to love and good deeds and to strengthen one another in that manner. The benefits and importance of being in fellowship with other believers cannot be underestimated. Paul says in Galatians 6.2, bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. Now, this is only going to happen if we let others in to our lives and let them help us in times of need. So when there is a need in our lives, we need to ask. And when we're asked, we need to act. So the disciples were off to a good start. Number one, they had obeyed Jesus explicitly and they were obeying Jesus. And then secondly, they were in fellowship. Oops. All right. The passage also states that uh, the disciples were united and devoted themselves to prayer. The disciples did not withdraw into a holy little huddle of 11 
But no, they included others. It said there were women there, and some think that those women might be the wives of some of the disciples. There was Mary, the mother of Jesus, and there were Jesus' brothers as well. They all realized that they were in great need, so they devoted themselves to prayer. And in so doing, they expressed their total confidence and dependence on God. Prayer is the demonstration that we know who we are. Weak. Sinners. People who make mistakes. And the and second thing that prayer is, is that we know to whom to go. And that is to go to our Heavenly Father who asks us to come. Hebrews 4.16 says, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. It says that we can come in confidence. 1 John 5.14 says, And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to the will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. In times of difficulty and uncertainty, the disciples came together and they fervently prayed. We should do the same when we reach uh, places similar. Well, let's go on um, in the passage. Okay. Verse 15 of Acts chapter 1. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. A company of persons was in all about 120 and said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was lauded his share in this ministry. And then verse 18 and 19 are in parentheses because this is Luke's comment on Judas. And he says, Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness. And falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their own language, Akeldama, that is, field of blood. All right, now it's no surprise, or it should be no surprise to us, <clears throat> that while they were waiting for the coming of the Holy Spirit, that Peter would propose that they do something. Okay. Peter had been a leader of the disciples all along, and it was Peter who called out, Lord, if it's you, command me to come on the water. And Jesus said, come. And Peter did. It was Simon who replied to Jesus when Jesus said, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus says, You're right, but flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but this was revealed to you by the Holy Spirit. In the Garden of Gethsemane, John writes, um, Then Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. And 
And this time Jesus told Peter, put away your sword because this is not the way this is going to end. But Peter demonstrated his love for the Savior. He was willing to sacrifice himself to try to protect the person who needed no protection. After the resurrection, it was Peter who said, I'm going fishing. And everybody else thought that was a great idea and they spent the night out fishing and caught nothing. Now, when I first read this passage as I was preparing for this first time through or first couple of times through, I thought, this is kind of odd that uh, in the midst of what's going on here that, that uh, Peter would say this or, or that Luke would include it. But the more I thought about it, I said, no, that's not odd. Because Judas had been with the other disciples for three years. And Peter himself in the passage, he testifies to that. But the thing that he tells about Judas was that he was the one who betrayed the Savior, who brought the soldiers to arrest him. Now, that was just a few weeks ago that happened. And you know that still had to be on the disciples' minds even at this time. But Peter also said that he was numbered among us. Now, that means that he was included in that group of 12 who spent all that time with Jesus. And Peter also says that he was allotted his share in this ministry. He served just like the rest of them. Judas acted like a disciple of Christ. And the other disciples had no idea, or would not have said anything different about Judas until he showed up in the garden with the soldiers. At that time, they knew that he was not a true disciple of Christ. In his book, Heaven So Near, So Far, Colin Smith imagines what Judas would have said about his role as a follower of Jesus. In fact, he writes the book as if Judah, what Judas was writing the book. And so in the introduction to the book, Judas says this, I came as close to heaven as a person can be without getting in. For three years, I followed Jesus Christ and devoted myself to ministry. I was in the boat when he calmed the storm. I served the bread and fish when he fed the 5,000. As an apostle, I was sent out to preach the gospel. I cast out demons, and I called people to repentance. But today, despite all that I did as a follower of Jesus, I'm languishing in hell. Yes, Judas put on a good show. But it was not genuine. Peter continues in verse 12 of, uh, 20 of uh, Acts chapter 1. He says, For it's written in the book of Psalms, May his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his office. Peter quotes here from Psalm 69 and Psalm 109. Now it's notable that Jesus would remember those verses. Peter did not carry a copy of Psalms with him on his smartphone like we do. And he certainly didn't have a scroll. He wasn't in a position to probably afford that or own that. 
So I believe that he was able to quote this because he had learned those verses when he was younger. And I think that should challenge us a little bit, that we not only need to know the words, the word, we need to learn it. We need to hide it in our heart, as Peter has done. And it was the Holy Spirit then who prompted Peter to remember those verses at this time. Now, this passage has both Old Testament and New Testament application. <clears throat> Excuse me. Psalm 69 is David's cry of distress because he had been betrayed when he was fleeing from Saul. And there were people all around him who were trying to capture him and kill him. So David, in 69, he prays that his... Uh, his enemies' residencies may become desolate. The scripture opportunity says, may his camp or their camp become desolate. Now, he wasn't just asking that they move out of those residencies. He was asking God to kill them. He wanted them done away with because of what they were doing to himself. Now, when Luke records this passage, at the moving of the Holy Spirit, then either in Peter or in Luke, I'm, you can't tell which, but the, the tense in this verse changes because you read the verse in Psalms and it says, may their camp be found desolate. And here it's quoted, may his camp be found desolate. So we go from the plural to the singular and we move it down to one. And thereby, that verse portrays the betrayal of Judas, of Jesus. And the result of that, the word then indicates that Judas's camp or his habitation, his office, his responsibilities, any one of those words will work there, had been permanently vacated. Permanently vacated. In Psalm 109, verse 8, we see it says, let another take his office. The word another here means a person of a different kind. There was a person of a different kind needed to fulfill that office that Judas had occupied. And so by the Holy Spirit's leading, then Peter interpreted this to mean that they were to replace Judas with someone else, and they proceeded to do so. <clears throat> so here we see that the disciples were depending upon God's word for direction. They were believing on it, and they were going to act on it. Psalm 119.105 says, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. And just like the disciples, we need to go to God's word when we need direction in our lives. But it's not enough to know the word. We must, by faith, live the word. All right, let's go to the last section of this chapter. Verse 21 then says, So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up, 
one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, you, Lord, knows the hearts of all. Show which of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go his own, to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the 11 apostles. So the first thing the disciples decide to do is to establish some criteria for what this replacement for Judas was going to look like. And the first thing they have say here is that he must have been with them from the beginning. <clears throat> Excuse me. That, way, that, that is from the baptism of John when Jesus started his public ministry and now going all the way through the ascension which they had just witnessed a few days ago perhaps. It must also be one who accompanied the disciples and Jesus during the time in which he went in and out among them. That is, this was not to be a casual follower. Well, think about that. Now, Jesus chose 12, and you can understand why those 12 would be together with him for all that time. But apparently, other men had done the same thing. And the one that they were going to select was one who needed to have been with them all the time. And then thirdly, he says, he must become with us a witness to his resurrection. Not implicitly stated in here, but I think it also is that this person must have a desire to do that work, become an apostle, and to spend his life, the rest of his life, giving witness to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The disciples narrowed the field down to two men, Joseph and Matthias. And the disciples did not see a clear choice between the two, so it says they prayed. And it's interesting what, as they prayed, what they prayed initially. They acknowledged that God is the person who knows the hearts of all men. That's really important because they want to make sure they get the right man, the one who has a man that is pleasing to God. That was something they could not do. They totally had to depend upon God to make that known to them. And then they asked him, God, to show them which one of the two that he had chosen. They either could not or would not make that decision, but they knew God would. The scripture says they cast lots for them. <clears throat> now, casting lots to me seems like leaving everything up to chance. Okay? Why would the disciples choose that method? Well, in the Bible, casting lots was a method that was used to make decisions or determine outcomes. And it, was, uh, it occurs several times within Scripture. It is mentioned specifically in the Old Testament uh, where God ordained and directed that the Urim and the Thummim should be kept by the high priest and should be used for times in which decisions were going to be made. So when the disciples chose casting of the lot, of, 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 of a lot to um, make the decision, I think they had two things in mind very clearly. And one was they had faith that God was in control of all, 
even the inanimate objects that they were going to use to make to do the casting of the lots, whatever that was. And then secondly, they were totally confident that he would make it abundantly clear to them which one of the two would be chosen. As we know, the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the 11. And he became part of that group, which was going to change the world and turn it upside down. And we're going to see that, or parts of that, certainly in the rest of our study of the book of Acts. So, let's summarize a little bit. So, what do we do when we get to the point where we sit and we look at each other and say, what do we do now? Well, based upon the disciples' examples, obey what we know God has instructed us to do. Let's not leave that behind. Because if we do, then really we're in sin. And I don't think God is going to use us as effectively as we might be used. We should stay in fellowship with other believers. And we should seek advice and counsel for them as we go forward. We should pray fervently and seek God's help. That's often the first one that we go to. Um, but nevertheless, that's a good one. We should know and search the scriptures for help. And then finally, we should act in faith on the direction that God gives us. The direction that God gives us may not necessarily be easy, and we don't always know the outcome of that, but we have to step out on faith as he directs us. We know the situations will come our way. And when they do, we should not despair. But we should rely on God to help us do the next thing that he wants us to do. And we should do that next thing in faith and confidence. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. And Father, I thank you for the disciples and Thank you for the example that they are completely sold out to you, Father, and to walk with you faithfully. And Father, we know that uh, we're going to have trials and temptations and difficulties in this world. And Father, as we do, we pray that we will look to you, that we will give the resources that, that uh, we'll use the resources that you've given us, Father, and that we'll walk in faith with you. So Father, as we do that this week, we pray that your name will be glorified. Father, we thank you for the fellowship that we have enjoyed today already. We pray, Father, as we proceed now to the luncheon this, this noon, that you will bless the food. Thank you, Father, for those who have prepared it for us. And Father, may you bless our fellowship together, for it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.